Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for season three of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, some of what my parents really have struggled with all their lives is, is why didn't the American dream work out well for them? It's the fairest system. Why didn't it, mm. it come to the full fruition? And I think for me, it's been truly liberating to actually have the analysis of yeah. like yeah. when the system itself is inequitable, with all of these lies we tell ourselves yeah. are just that. New Year's resolutions are strange things. There you are, careening toward the end of the year, and then you add lots of alcohol and family disputes and decide that is the right moment to make bold promises about the year to come. I mean, I decided to go dry for January, which is lunacy since this podcast is basically a vehicle for me to drink alcohol at work. I'm more into my other resolution, though. I want to stop being such a yuppie fuck and actually open my eyes to what life is like for too many people who share this city with me. Over 43% of New Yorkers live at or near the poverty line, this in a city that lawyers can barely afford to live in. The schools are segregated as hell, the prisons are filled with black and brown people, some dude gets up at 2 in the morning to chop the fruit that will go on my stupid cup of breakfast yogurt. He makes $4 an hour, and the least I can do for that dude is stop pretending that his problems have nothing to do with me. That is where Jennifer Ching comes in. She's the executive director of the Deeply Righteous North Star Fund, a social justice foundation that lets the communities of New York decide where their needs are greatest. We met at her Midtown office and talked about a lot of things, but most of it basically adds up to, you cannot just give money, you've got to give away some power. Am I ready to do that? Are you? I don't know, but while I make baby steps out here, I'm glad that Jennifer and North Star are in the field doing the tough work. I'm yuppie fuck Nathan Thornburg, and you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. All right, tell me a little bit about what we're drinking. Okay, so we're meeting in the first week of January, which means we're meeting when everybody is living the best version of themselves. So if we had met even just last hand. week, I would have been like, here's a root beer and some whiskey <laughs> <laughs> and some like sweet and low for you to throw in there. So, like, Damn, I got to come back another, another time. Uh, but so that is not what we're drinking. We are drinking an herbal mixture that is called Love Your Nerves. And it's made of oat straw, lemon balm, chamomile, rose, lavender. And it's hand-created um, by an herbalist um, whose project is called Flor y Machete. Um, and she is a Puerto Rican activist here in New York City who um, does a lot of healing justice work in communities of color and beyond. So I'm happy to sort of share a bit of her and product with you. You had said that she'd come from a uh, black herbal collective? Uh, yes, she is from, and I, I have to remember the name, but she was trained in a, um, in a black-led um, herbalist group. Still, that's impressive. Uh, yeah. It's also delicious. It's, what is this going to do for my new year, like my best version of myself? <laughs> well... Is, you is know, with calming? everything, it's, 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 I don't, you know, 
I think part of what I am really trying to do in my life. So I grew up um, in central New Jersey. Mm-hmm. I grew up on the edge of a super fun landfill, one of the largest landfills. Um, I grew up the chi- in the 70s and 80s. I grew up the child of processed foods. Yeah. I think, um, I think like a lot of folks, but very deeply for me, I've really tried to sort of spend my adult life detoxifying myself yeah. and finding a different connection to even what my tongue or my body deems as appropriate. You know, I mean, I grew up, like my brother and I would come home from school and we would open up a can of Chef Boyardee and it right. was like, Which that was good living. <laughs> you are a sodium junkie. Exactly. And your body Sugar doesn't junkie. know any better. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So there's something about sort of even the way in how we how I approach kind of thinking about things like herbal teas like it's not about trying to get this like great depth of flavor it's just about trying to get some proximity yeah. to something that tastes um just real. you said we're all trying to live our best lives uh I'm trying to not drink alcohol this month uh so I could just fit into the slipstream of all the new year's resolutioners and <laughs> you're on uh, the long lines at the salad place like everyone else <laughs> just like i sent an open call on twitter for people to send me weed because it's going to be a long january <laughs> but the other thing you know that i'm that i wanted to make a conscious effort for myself to do and this is a very specific new york thing is just like to not get so good at looking away we're here on 8th avenue and like 37th uh just the walk from penn station yes. here is like many Dickens novels in in 10 minutes and for someone like myself who's got a job and an office and family and an apartment that's a, an, a nearly invisible backdrop at this point. I've been in New York for 14 years and I'm just totally used to it on some level and that's mm-hmm. a little distressing. North Star has always struck me as a place where you get into like the really toughest stuff like maternal care at Rikers Island. These are like very tough lives and tough cases that that uh, are such a part of our city fabric. So part of what I want you to teach me, um, if you wouldn't mind, is just how to be a better person in New York. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very simple thing. Uh, uh, but, you know, it just it's like how do you live in a city that is just so f- flooded with inequality in this kind of... Um, I mean, I love New York, but man, it's a rough place and people are having some very hard lives. Yeah, Easy questions. Easy questions. Well, first of all, I'm going to make this required listening for my kids because someone has actually asked me to teach them how to be a better person. And so <laughs> there will be like a historic record of this conversation. <laughs> it was a grown ass person. All right, exactly. Wanted me to do what I'm trying to do for you guys every day. So a few responses. The first is that there's always something to do. And I think the worst thing that we can do is to fall into a pattern of well-intentioned paralysis. So many people that I talk to, I think, really underestimate the means that they have to be change agents Hmm. in their community, however they define. So um, whether within your school, within your family, within your neighborhood, within your borough. So there's a space where it's been really exciting over the past two years, right? Because it feels like many people have become activated and engaged in different ways. And that's fantastic. But I also think that particularly for individuals who are, you know, we live in the Upper West Side in Brooklyn, respectively, um, we could 
you could plop us in a suburb, you could plop us in other neighborhoods. Um, there's a certain amount where I feel like we know that we are participating in a system where we are winning. Yeah. And we are getting gains. And we're highly, when, when we really think about it, yeah. we're uncomfortable with. Deeply, yes. Yeah, deeply, right? But that discomfort then is the end of the inquiry, right. I think, for many of us, right? Maybe we'll go online and we'll make a gift to the ACLU yeah. or we'll show the kids a responsible documentary, right? So then the question that I always have is like, well, what are the decisions you're going to make in your life that are actually risky? Like, what are the decisions you can make in your life that are uncomfortable? Yeah. And that's where the beginning of change and transformation, I think, actually starts. It was really uncomfortable for me to leave this career that I had painstakingly built and that had actually been the sort of culmination of this sort of perception of what the American dream would be for me and yeah. my family, right? Immigrants, and then I went to Harvard, and then I became a lawyer, right? right? But all the while, I felt very much like, even as I was doing very mission-aligned work, that I wasn't, I wasn't addressing the very problem that I knew existed. Yeah. This question of this inequity of yeah. wealth and resources and love and life, right? And so I encourage people to make uncomfortable yeah. decisions. And one of the most uncomfortable decisions that I encourage people to make is to actually give money away. To give money away to a group and in a way that is unrestricted and in a way that is respectful of the sort of building equity in that transfer of resources. And to not just give money away blindly and freely, right? One of the things that I think people need to be more careful about is to actually plan and be thoughtful right. about what they're able to give and how they give. That's the that's the panhandling dilemma also. Yes. Yeah. I think giving to a place where you are giving towards this sort of freedom of self is so important. So I would never say, and I'm sort of acutely bothered by those signs that say, don't give to panhandlers, yeah. give instead to organizations. Um, because we all have, you know, capacities to give in, in many different ways. I mean, they're, you know, what we're building at North Star Fund is not, we're not just saying, oh, only the, the velvet couched philanthropist can give to North Star Fund, right? I mean, you know, people give to us, People give in New York at all, all from all different walks of life. Right. There's power in all of our collective money yeah. and resources, and so it's about reframing all of that towards rebuilding something different. Yeah. Every once in a while, it does bubble up, and I get you know kind of in a panic about the life that I'm leading and the life you know and the environment that I'm leading it in, and having that instinct to help alone is not enough. Like, when I get the idea, I get it in a very irrational and probably slightly counterproductive way. Yeah. It's so much of that, and it's, it's about getting people out of the mind frame that the scarcity framework is real, and that, um, and that, and that the resources really are limited. Yeah. Um, you know, something you just sort of said just resonated with me about sort of this idea that we all come to the city or are born here with these narratives about what it's going to take to be successful and secure here, but we never actually reach that. I've never met anyone <laughs> in New York who has said to me, right. I am I am safe and secure in my life. I am not yearning for or coveting anything else. Um, and so there's something we said about why that is. And 
you know, I don't, I would never begrudge anyone who decides that they want to engage in some form of service. I yeah. mean, I, you know, I used to run a soup kitchen. I mean, I, I very much believe in serving um, and being good and doing good. But I think the question for me always is, you can do that and you can have some individual impact, but what are you actually doing to situate yourself in the story mm. of actually changing the system? What are you actually doing that is challenging and that may actually result in a system where you lose some power and it's not about you giving a plate to someone or a blanket to someone or um, being in a stage where you're so kindly sharing with someone else but where you are accepting someone else's power and someone else's examination of society and determination of what should actually happen um I think that's a really big step for a lot of people. And so one of those spaces that I think we try and create here is called a giving project. And we run it every year and it's six months. And basically it's about 25 New Yorkers from really vastly different walks of life. We've got individuals who have inherited wealth, individuals who are low income, immigrants, you know, folks who have been multiple generations in New York. And basically we bring them together and we work as a group to be able to talk and understand the history of race and class in the U.S. and in New York in particular, and our own personal situation within that story. And then we work with the group to learn about um, the power of grassroots fundraising and the work of grassroots organizers throughout New York City. And then this group actually goes out and raises money and then Grant makes it out to different groups organizing across different fields like affordable housing, healthcare, um, LGBTQ rights, homeless rights. And so that whole process of seeing yourself in the system of money and then being able to, in the history of money and race and gender and all of the sort of systems at play, taking it outside of yourself and talking to your network of your family and friends about really becoming different sorts of actors in that system and and then giving the money away is a really, it's and collectively doing so, to me has been a really exciting project. It's really changed my Um, just my own personal views about the abilities of New Yorkers to really come together and have really difficult conversations. So last year's Giving Project um, uh, raised and gave away over $200,000 to, gosh, um, you know, dozens of organizations. And what did, was there a a theme in terms of the organizations that they gave money to in, in that process? They engage in a proposal review process. They go on site visits. All of the organizations that they supported are led by community members, focus on organizing, and are looking at different sorts of systemic reforms, just very grassroots-based and grassroots-led. And what we are essentially is a community-led organization that raises money to support really amazing neighborhood-led grassroots organizing in New York City and the Hudson Valley. So at North Star Fund, um, you know, you're sitting here in this office with me and I'm the executive director and we just walked through sort of all of the standard office cubicles, but none of us who are the paid staff here make the decisions about where our money is allocated. 
Uh, the decisions for the grants that we give and the community groups and the social justice movements that we support, all those decisions are led by these community funding committees that are comprised of activists and organizers themselves. They decide basically where we put our money. And that that's an unusual model. It's an unusual model. It's so unusual that there really aren't that many peer you know, sisters funds among us. Yeah. yeah. If you live in New York City, um, there's participatory budgeting. And in the field of philanthropy, there is participatory grant making. But at North Star Fund, we obviously support wider democracy. But the work that we really do is about actually subverting the core principle about the power that money has over us and the linkage between money and power. And so our grant making model, you know, the model that is in a few funds around the country like ours is to really just say to people with money, if you're going to give your money, which you should, you should give it for two purposes. One, you should give your money to support community led organizing for actual systems change. And then two, you should actually give away the decision-making power of the money. Because part of what we're seeing now yeah. is this rise of like, you know, the, the, the new generation of J.P. Morgans and Rockefellers, the Chan Zuckerberg initiatives, yeah. and all of the, the Bezos um, philanthropy wealth is so much about what the individual chooses and wants to do with the money that they have essentially extracted and stolen from from low-income communities. So we're all about bringing that money back. And so you are not um, dedicating named buildings in honor of donors. Um, You know, I'm kind of laughing because I think it's easy to poke fun and poke holes at the way in which charitable giving is constructed. It's an easy target to say, oh, we're not about the ego. You know, we're not about the, we don't, we don't want our name attached, right? At the end of the day, what we really want is to see a significant sea change in the access to power that people have. And we believe that there is a way where you can build community power while you are also shifting resources. And so that traditional relationship of philanthropist or foundation giving money to someone charitably and expecting in return a series of outcomes, that's not what we're about. We give money here, it's unrestricted, no strings attached. The organizers, the activists who approach us for money, we try and make our process as transparent as possible for them. And we just are really trying to invest in people-led movements to give people the same flexibility that really um, anyone who is looking to try and build any sort of significant movement or, you know, product or life should have. How do you keep projects accountable? I mean, what do you have to watch out for in that model? I really love that question because I think that gets to the core of the very deeply uneasy relationship we all have with money and and how we all use money as a vehicle for expressing power in our lives. I mean, you and I could probably have another three-hour conversation about the ways in which we've probably unsuccessfully navigated financial dynamics within our families, within our personal lives and our decisions, what we hide, what we tell, what we exercise. You and I are both raising children. I'm sure we are constantly holding money over them in different ways and yet at the same time trying to teach them a healthy relationship to it. 
all of that is the personal exercise of what we really try and do here, which is if you take a framework, which at North Star Fund is focused on the idea that people of color and communities that have been most impacted by injustice are the ones who should lead in developing the solutions for those injustices, then the natural outgrowth of having that framework is let us construct a process that is as transparent and equitable and shifts power away from those who are holding the money. Because for so many of us, this assumption that we came into our money by merit, or we came into our, our money by what was owed to us, is such a fiction of the American dream. Oh right? yeah, so that's a bit of danger that's uh, done yeah. some damage recently. <laughs> yes, <laughs> just a little. So then that actually comes to your question of like, yeah. so how do you account for what impact the organizations you give money to have, or how do you make sure that good work is done and whatnot? And let me just also be honest with you, I was just, until a hot minute ago, I was a grantee. I come from a background of having worked in nonprofits, having right. been the person with the tin cup, yeah. you know, being like, yes, I will, you know, I will paint my walls purple and do whatever you want right. just so that I can yeah, exactly. put your lobby. name on a plaque in right. the lobby. Yeah. Um, use your name whenever I you know walk around and say things. But that's just so damaging because that is just actually like what that creates is this just like gerbil wheel for people whom we expect to be the brightest and the most exciting risk takers. Yeah. Instead, we confine them into these contraptions of our own design and making. You, how long have you been in this role? Uh, I have been here in April. It will be two years. Okay. And before that, you were working on the tin cup side. I was on the tin cup. I, mean, that's... <laughs> I have a little bit of a strange background. I am one of the, you know, 3.6 million unhappy lawyers in New York City who left the law. But I practiced law for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I practiced law from a whole different number of vantage points. I was a community-based lawyer uh, working directly with undocumented workers. I was a civil rights lawyer, and post 9-11, I did a substantial amount of work protecting the rights of both immigrants here in the U.S. and then for individuals detained in Guantanamo. I've worked on criminal justice cases. Just prior to coming here, I was for seven years running a local legal services program in Queens. Okay. And I also, for five years, litigated at a massive international corporate law firm. Was that your first job? That was, I was sort of in the middle. (laughs) I was in the middle, you know, um, I, I didn't grow up with a ton of financial security. So part of the way my career has been built has been sort of how do I pay off my loans, pay my debts and still do work that is impactful. That issue of kind of going across communities is a huge one that you seem very well suited to take on. Um, I had been to a meeting in my role as parent about selective high school admissions. Yeah. Which really was a flashback for me because I I went to an academic magnet public school in San Francisco that had discriminatory entry policies that were anti-Chinese, basically, uh, and I think increasingly like anti-Korean, but it's basically quotas. At the same time, it was like a horrendously non-diverse school. And I had a little idea that that race war essentially was still playing out here with Stuyvesant and Bronx Science. It was very heated. You know, it was like a lot of shouting to 
put the battle lines very broadly. It was like whites and Asians on one side, blacks and Hispanics on another, all looking for access to this. I don't think it's as great a resource as they think it is in terms of like how important is a selective high school to your future uh, in life. But still, people see it as a crown jewel of public school. And it was a little fucked up. Like, it was a little disheartening. And you're like, oh, crap. How can people kind of cross these things? And if you're talking about finances as a zero-sum game or a, a scarce resource, it's the same thing with educational access yeah. and opportunity where there must be some way to break through. Yeah, gosh. We're going to talk about this, then we're going to have to have a longer conversation. Clear your calendar. <laughs> we're going to figure out I mean, educational access equity. It is such a perverse disgrace that the primary battlefield by which we fight about inequity is education when you know the, the educational system reflects the centuries of wealth stripping, of racism, of oppression, of segregation, of redlining, of all the things, all the things and yeah, more, right? Yeah, right? And then we expect this system of the most powerless in our society, children, to somehow be the curative mm-hmm. program. So, yeah, I mean, it's been extraordinarily painful. It's extraordinarily painful as an Asian American and as a child of immigrants. It's really painful to hear the divisions. I mean, you may know, but Harvard right now is currently in the middle of a lawsuit about its affirmative action, right? And I so credit the advocates and the parents and the students who are leading the conversation to bring us back to what this should really be about, which is actual equity and about creating a different sort of system and not just band-aiding and upping percentages and taking these sort of mitigating acts, but actually looking ahead and understanding why the protective policies are in place to begin with because the entirety of the system is so skewed. Well, I I never want to discount the ability of people as as individuals to be jerks and self-interested, and and that goes across any any racial group. (laughs) But it's also worth pointing out in that conversation, it's, it's right here on my coffee mug, I've got 99 problems in white heteronormative patriarchy is basically all of them. You know, some of what my parents really have struggled with all their lives is, is why didn't the American dream work out well for them? It's the fairest system. Why didn't it, it mm. come to the full fruition? And I think for me, it's been truly liberating to actually have the analysis of yeah. like yeah. when the system itself is inequitable with all of these lies we tell ourselves. It really rained on me when I arrived at Harvard. I arrived and sort of got settled into this dorm. I came from a you know big public high school in New Jersey. And like in my dorm, there was someone who was a fifth generation <laughs> Harvard student. Yeah. There were football players. All these folks who were there for reasons that I came to see, right, right were outside of the merit system that I had been raised to yes. believe in. I spent all these years in the law really trying to understand the role that someone like I could have in challenging different institutions of power. And um, and what I really came to see was that there is a place for many of us to exist in sort of a move for social justice. But I wanted to move to a place where I had a clearer sense of, of how power moves. That the law is in many ways exists to just protect itself and as a lawyer so many times I felt like my role was merely to keep the system running the way that it is and not to actually just challenge and dismantle 
the system. Does this new Congress feel, I mean, it's very diverse. It's got some really interesting people in it. There's uh, some sort of check on power. Is there a good moment happening here? Or are you looking at a long game where all of those things are just kind of blips? I had a lot of conversations over the holidays where I'd start talking a little bit about, you know, what I'm working on and folks would kind of shut me down and be like, Jen, it's all about 2020. You know, like, like we're just forced now to live in these two-year political increments and make these um, specific gains. Of course, I support and believe very much in the work to transform political systems, but at the end of the day, that's we're just not we're not just fighting for for a different sort of majority, right? We're fighting for actual transformation. That doesn't look like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer making deals, right? That is about real and meaningful and different sorts of leadership, right? To me, it's a it's a generational shift. Like we were just saying before, there's no social justice movement out there that's like we're gonna rest when Barack Obama's in the White House, right? Because yeah. that's not real, like the, the actual transformation, the actual dismantling and, and, and creating a different system is yeah. a lot harder than just getting a simple political majority. And, and, you know, and there's nothing simple even about that political majority given the sort of legacy of leaving behind so many communities in right. its wake. But I think the sort of like flip side of the question is like how we've come to relate as this like massive monolithic useless term of liberal or left or whatnot. Yeah. Um, the sort of deep anxiety that everyone has. It's really interesting. Like I came up as a child under Reagan and I came up professionally under George W. Bush. And so the idea that there is a kinder, evil to me is not like what I am looking for right, right. like the sort of yeah. the masters of policy and all of those administrations are the same ones that are here now so there's no new tricks in the bag of oppression right yeah. it's just about taking more yeah. wealth and resources yeah. and incarcerating and just keeping the system protected and so in that mind to me, it's actually very calming. I don't get up in my pants every time Trump reverses a policy because this is a longer game, as you say, and we cannot expend all of our energy and forget sort of what ties us actually to our morals and value system in the first place. Like, I think it's really interesting, the viral video of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez going around of her dancing as a college student. Yeah, yeah. And there's like this, just like the way things fly in social media, like conservatives outraged, she's such a twit, yeah. right? Liberals saying, ha, ah, she's actually really cool and you guys are just like completely lame, right? Yeah. And everyone just like goes up in this frenzy. Right, right. But for me, the thing that I just always think about is that there is so much joy attached to living a life where your single purpose and goal is to support and build a life that is better for everyone else. There's a simplicity in sort of a real rote simplicity yeah. in what I actually think. Yeah. And, and that is just a very calming space. It's also this very deeply comfortable sense of joy and comfort and connection with people who are different from me and this very deeply rooted sense that like I'm on this journey thanks to 
you know, hundreds of millions of people of color before me. I'm on this journey in particular, thanks to black slaves and black leaders who risked everything to even create the modern construct of rights that we have. And so I owe to this journey the space for others to build their leadership and to be just joyful about it, not throw more into the anxiety pool. So... Man, that is uh, that's a that's a cup of tea I would sit from. It sounds like we're getting close to some kind of resolution for the new year. Jennifer, thank you so much for spending the time. Thank you for having me. The trip is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg, produced by Roads and Kingdoms. Taffy Mokanyadzi is our editor and producer. Audio mixing and production help comes from Emily Marinoff. Our executive producers are me and Matt Goulding. Music by Dan the Automator. Art by Adele Rodriguez. Over on roadsandkingdoms.com this week, look for Emily Marinoff's story about the Vietnam photo project of photographer Simone Sapienza. The project makes these wild and gorgeous visual connections between the hyper-modern capitalist Vietnam and its mythologized communist past. Next week on the trip, I'll be in an attic in the world's longest standing commune, Christiania in Copenhagen, Denmark. It started in the 1970s and soldiers on despite the twin threats of mass tourism and a sometimes violent drug trade. My dear friend Tanya Fox, half American, all heart, grew up in Christiania and has amazing stories to tell about its past, present, and future. You could actually be really, really tired, but nobody would put you to bed. And, you know, sometimes it could be like, hey, mom, I'm hungry, but yeah, yeah, but the food is over there. And the people who were supposed to do the food that day were maybe too stoned or maybe doing something else. I don't know. I have memories of not having food. My mom has other memories, but um, and she doesn't like me saying this. And I'm sorry, mom. I love you. We will meet you there. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for season three of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.